Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Looking to advertise your product? Reach out to Ray at laurashinpodcast at gmail.com to find out more about sponsorship opportunities on Unchained and Unconfirmed. My guest today is Linda Shea, co-founder at Scalar Capital. Welcome, Linda. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. You recently came back from ETH Berlin. What was your takeaway after attending? Yeah, um, I was really excited to see all of the development that happened um, in the Ethereum community. So I've been attending the uh, ETH Global hackathons around the world for the past year. And I think ETH Berlin ended up being my favorite in terms of what was being built. Um, I think a lot of the tooling has improved and um, there's just more ideas being shared. So my favorite um, project that came out of that was um, Remco and Leo from the Xerox team had built something called Ethstonian Identity. And they actually allowed for the Ethstonian e-residency card to sign Ethereum transactions so this was like the first time where you could actually have a government-issued ID sign blockchain transactions. And you can imagine that this is actually a really useful um, case because you can now have these like legally binding contracts being signed by a government-issued ID. Um, so there were like actual practical things that were being built here rather than just kind of like funny games. So I was really impressed by the ideas and the developer community and just Berlin was a totally different scene than what I had been used to in Silicon Valley. So it just was very, um, very eye-opening for me. That's interesting. I want to ask more about the Estonia ID. I think right now the Estonian digital ID is not blockchain-based. Do they plan to make it blockchain-based or does it just not matter whether or not it is? It doesn't matter that it is. Um, so they just use their API and kind of were able to, um, to tie it with Ethereum. But I think their plan is to actually talk to the Estonian government and try to see if there's like an easier way to collaborate. Cause they said it was actually quite difficult to use the API and actually build this. So it was like a lot of work. Um, so I think they're going to try to make it so that it's easier to actually build using this. And what did you mean when you said that you felt like the Berlin scene was different from what you normally see in Silicon Valley? Yeah. So every time I go to these like um, meetups in Silicon Valley, I mean, they're, they're really brilliant people um, who are talking about the things they're trying to build, but it feels very like marketing heavy a lot of times in, in the way that like they're saying like, oh, you know, our backers are all these top tier VC funds and we're trying to, um, you know, kill Ethereum and, and, like really tried to build this like huge world computer. Whereas like I noticed a lot of people um, in Berlin were very focused on talking about just like exciting um, technical advancements they're making. And they were extremely collaborative. Like I, I checked out full node, which is the co-working space in Berlin. And there were a bunch of crypto, like it's only crypto teams that work there. And there was like 
Gollum and Cosmos and 1KX that we're all working out of there. And they're just, they see each other daily. And so there's this like more collaborative feel of like, hey, like these are the things we're building and let's try to collaborate together. Whereas here in Silicon Valley, it just feels very different. Like it feels a little bit more siloed. Interesting. And wait, and when you say that, do you feel like it's both cultural as well as physical in the sense that, as you mentioned, a lot of the teams in Berlin are actually working in the same physical space? Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it, honestly. And then here, like people are kind of viewing themselves a little bit more as competitors. It's not to say there's not as much collaboration, but because you're not seeing each other daily um, and you, there's a, a you know, much larger crypto community here, you don't end up working with the same people over and over very closely. Um, so it just felt like I was just getting the sense it was just a lot more collaborative over there. Um, but again, I was just there for a week. I, I could be wrong, but it, it did feel quite different for me. Huh. And you mentioned people building Ethereum killers. I was just kind of mm-hmm. curious to know what you think about that narrative right now. You know, we've got a gazillion <laughs> new smart contract platforms that are launching this summer that are trying mm-hmm. to take on Ethereum. You know, how do you feel that narrative compares to the reality that you saw at the hackathon? Like, do you feel like Ethereum is a good target? Yeah. Um, so I, I totally understand where that narrative comes from. I mean, right now there are definitely scaling issues on Ethereum and just even at Scalar, we've made bets on Ethereum competitors, but I do think that it's extremely hard to replicate the developer community that I've been seeing in Ethereum. So uh, just the upcoming East San Francisco hackathon, there's going to be a thousand hackers there. And these people are just like really excited to be building on Ethereum. And there's such a community around it right now that I think it's just going to be extremely difficult for other teams to be able to replicate that unless you make it um, really easy for developers to switch over. But if you're building like an entirely new platform that has completely different tooling and uh, consensus mechanism and way of thinking about it. I think it's going to be really hard to attract these developers. And I also think like people are just overestimating the sense of urgency that we need to take these dApps mainstream right now. Um, We're still in the very early days of just like tinkering around with dApps and figuring out what's a, a good user experience. Like, even if we had like this ultimate scaling um, smart contracts platform system that didn't sacrifice decentralization, like I actually don't think there's enough dApps out there that actually would be used and you would actually need that many transactions per second. So we're still like really like in the early days right now. And I think Ethereum has, has um, plenty of time to kind of work on their scaling solutions. So there's a lot of very brilliant people working on that. And it's, um, they're tackling it from very like many different angles. So it's not like all of them have to succeed in order for Ethereum to be successful. They just need some of the scaling solutions to work. Um, so right now I'm, I'm closely watching it, but that doesn't mean I'm not, I don't want to like blind myself to other things being built out there. So we have bet on some other um, competitors, but so far right now, I think Ethereum has the lead and it's hard to replicate what it has. Which ones have you bet on the competitors? Um, I mean, so we bet on Cadena uh, and Definity uh, most recently. I, I really like that they are trying to scale without trading off decentralization. That to me is really important concept because the whole reason why we're using blockchain in the first place is to make sure that uh, we don't have a you know a trusted group that is controlling anything and that it's going to be censorship resistant. Um, so I, I really like their approaches and and. I, I think it's a very novel method, especially with Definity, where you essentially have this like, you know, random group verifying blocks, um, and no one knows what that group is because it's truly random, uh, rather than having this like set group of known actors um, 
verifying all these blocks that, like some of the other platforms out there. I definitely recommend listeners check out my interview with Dominic Williams of Definity. I don't know if listeners felt like he explained it all very well, but it's certainly very informative if you're interested in the project. I want to actually go back to what you were saying about how it will be difficult for some of these other platforms to get developers to switch from Ethereum. You kind of described it in a way where it just sort of seemed like you know, trying to get them over that hump of having to learn how to develop on a different platform would be Mm -hmm. what would keep them on Ethereum. But in a way, like, didn't they have to learn how to use Ethereum? So I I kind of don't understand why that would, like, if they, uh, you know, overcame that obstacle for Ethereum, why they wouldn't do the same for a different platform? Or or is it maybe just that you think like they all, you know, there's so much being built on Ethereum that they all want to, you know, interoperate with each other? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Um, people can certainly learn new platforms, but even just like this past year, looking at the hackathons, I mean, there was so much that um, people had to learn in order to build dApps that were actually working. I mean, there was like so many issues with like people using the test net and, and they just like didn't know like what best practices were with smart contracts. So there is that hurdle. Um, but it's really great having a community around it where they're, you know, creating more documentation. People are collaborating with each other. Um, there's the interoperable nature of this Ethereum community where people are building things that end up, you know, being built on other protocols or that plug into each other. So I think it's a combination of both. And it's just like kind of the network effects around Ethereum right now. And Ethereum took a while to build this up. So my point being that just Ethereum has more time because it's not like overnight any of these competitors can all of a sudden just build a a huge dev community the way that Ethereum has right now. Yeah. And I also urge listeners to check out some recent episodes I did on Unchained where I have been interviewing these teams that are working on, I think what they would call kind of like decentralized finance. And so they're each building protocols around things like debt and money markets and lending and credit. And they're all building on Ethereum and even like a uh, security token uh, standard that I interviewed recently that was on Ethereum. So there does seem to be kind of like this movement in that direction, which is pretty interesting. Um, but we're going to be discussing privacy coins and also some other matters in a moment. But first, a quick announcement, which is that this ad spot could be yours. If you're looking to advertise your crypto or blockchain product or service, reach out to Raylene at laurashinpodcast at gmail.com to find out about sponsorship opportunities on Unchained and Unconfirmed. I'm speaking with Linda Shea of Scalar Capital. One of Scalar's main focuses is privacy coins. Why is this an emphasis in your fund? Yeah, um, so part of it stems from when I first joined Coinbase. Um, I joined uh, mid-2014, and my first role there was a regulatory compliance investigator. I fell into that role because that's what they needed at the time. And I told them I would do anything. So it's a really random role. But um, in the early days, I was um, working with law enforcement. And um, we were um, in the very beginning and teaching them about Bitcoin. um, There was a lot of um, fear from law enforcement that, um, you know, Bitcoin's completely untraceable. And it's this just this black hole, and it's going to be used for money laundering. But in actuality, it's a completely transparent public ledger. I mean, it's pseudonymous in that you don't have actual names, but information certainly gets revealed over time. So um, in my role, I was tracing Bitcoin and um, and I was able to gather a lot of information. Um, so you can imagine people posting their 
um, you know, donation addresses on forums, or um, you can see if you pay, uh, you, you buy an online good with a merchant, um, they now give you a Bitcoin address that you have to pay. Um, there's also court documents that reveal addresses of various things like Silk Road. And so all of this information gets revealed over time and you can start kind of tagging these addresses as um, maybe potentially doing some illicit activity or even if it's not illicit activity, um, you can start seeing like, you know, what people are doing. And and over time, uh, this work got less manual and there were companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic that started automating all of this and using more advanced clustering techniques to start tagging addresses. So when we go back and think like what Bitcoin is supposed to be, it's supposed to be um, money and um, money actually needs to be fungible. So you, you don't want um, to have this notion of this like history of tainted transactions. Um, so if someone were to pay you Bitcoin and it has this like history of all this illicit activity that they did and you had nothing to do with it, you might have uh, an issue getting this money accepted on various exchanges or by various merchants. And even worse, you can actually get in trouble. So someone might flag that as potentially um, illicit behavior that you had nothing to do with and you could get in trouble. Um, there's also the, um, and this to me is really important, if you are living um, in a country where there's corrupt government and um, they're spying on you, um, you really want to make sure that you're protecting yourself and not having things be so transparent. So um, for me, this is just a fundamental need for money to actually be used. Um, we're very... We're very used to that in actually our current financial system. We're not broadcasting every transaction for the world to see. We're being selectively transparent. If we want to share that information with someone, we then um, we then choose to selectively share it with them. Um, and so that's to me just um, why we feel like um, it's so important to have privacy-preserving technology in this industry. And a lot of people are kind of undervaluing it right now. They're not, they're not talking about it enough. And so we think that's a really great investment opportunity. And from the way you're talking, it seems like you maybe are interested in Zcash if you want to have that option of being able to reveal the transactions because they have, you know, the, I'm just forgetting the name of the, the view the key. key, the view key. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Zcash isn't the only one to have a view key. Um, so Monero also has that concept and, and that's actually Oh, that's actually a big reason why I like both Monero and Zcash. Um, I, I don't like this idea of like having this like black hole um, privacy coin where there's no way you can ever be compliant. Um, so I, I like that they have the view key, but uh, and I'm, I'm big fans of Zcash, but at the same time, um, and even Zcash acknowledges this, uh, very few transactions on Zcash right now are actually private. And that has a lot to do with how ZK snarks are um, just really time intensive um, and computationally expensive to um, generate. So right now it's just optional to, um, to, to do a private transaction. And so the, the stats with that is that um, only, I, I just looked recently, it was like only 13% of transactions are shielded and less than 3% of the volumes actually shielded transactions. Um, but if you actually dig into this a little bit more, um, actual private to private transactions, um, are even lower. So it ends up being, um, less than 1%. So right now there's a lot of work that Zcash needs to do in order to make sure that, that there are way more transactions that are actually being private. Because when you have such a limited set that's actually anonymous, it's very easy to trace what's happening. And even at, um, Zcon Zero, Mary Mahler was presenting and saying that 
she and, and other researchers were able to associate basically 70% of the activity in this shielded pool with certain miners and founders. So as much as I love Zcash, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And ultimately, I hope that Zcash gets to this mandatory um, default privacy so that when you opt into privacy, you're not all of a sudden having this like target on your back and people wondering like, why, why are you doing a private transaction? Like, are, are you trying to hide something? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. I'm so glad you're saying all this stuff because this is what I was asking Zuko about when I interviewed him. And I don't mean to keep plugging my podcast, but it is actually quite relevant. <laughs> People really should go back and listen to the interview with Zuko on Unchained. He really took the time to answer all my questions as honestly as possible. But I was asking him things like, oh, well, if only some of the transactions are private, then isn't it sort of like a Sudoku where people could kind of figure out who was doing what? And, you know, he really, he really, you know, walked me through everything. But I did, you know, say to him, you know, just like you said, I think that in Zcash, because it's optional, it will sort of look like if you choose to go private, then you're doing something shady. And Mm -hmm. it was a super, super interesting discussion. And he was really open and honest. But one other thing that I wanted to ask you was, so I totally understand your investment thesis here, but I sort of wonder how it plays out in the actual investments, because you know, these are open source projects. And while definitely Monero and Zcash have won over some hearts, I do wonder if in the future, if some of their privacy technology is just going to be adopted into a more popular coin like Bitcoin. So in that regard, mm-hmm. how do you, you know, and, and if that were the case, then like you wouldn't necessarily benefit from having been right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Bitcoin has done a lot of um, really great work in, in researching privacy technology and there's wallets out there that add um, more privacy features. So I, I think that um, that's certainly going to happen and Bitcoin will be more private over time. But privacy is never this like binary outcome. Like you're never all of a sudden fully private. Um, and so it's always going to be this like cat and mouse game. Um, and I think that having a team that focuses primarily and, and, and solely on privacy um, is extremely important because you're always going to have new data that gets leaked out or new technology that these data analytic companies are going to be looking at. And so to have a team that's focused on that is really important to me um, because they make privacy the priority. Whereas in Bitcoin, um, as great as great as it is, like privacy is not the ultimate feature of it. Um, so that's why I really like this specialization within the privacy space. And it's also like, it's, I, I think like people also underestimate just how easy it is to, um, oh, sorry, overestimate how easy it is to actually work with this privacy technology. So, um, as we're talking about ZK snarks and, and upcoming ZK starks, um, there's actually not that many people in the world that are experts at this. So it's not like, any trivial matter understand just like yeah <laughs> to just like copy paste it um and so i i do really love the like the separate focus that these coins have so really quickly before we have to go you did mention before we started recording that you feel like you're seeing a lot of common mistakes amongst a lot of crypto teams what mm-hmm. what would those mistakes be and what advice do you find yourself giving a lot to such teams nowadays yeah, so um, I, I talked to a lot of really brilliant teams, but it seems to be a really common trend where they say, um, "Oh, we're crypto projects who are like completely different than these like other like traditional companies, and so we have like different problems we need to focus on." 
And they, I feel like they throw a lot of the best practices that were learned from these tradi- traditional companies out the window. And I think there's still a lot to um, learn from what um, all these, you know, tech startups have had to deal with. So um, having, you know, vesting schedule for employees, I've, I've talked to teams that didn't even understand that why they would need a vesting schedule. Um, you <laughs> want them to stick around, not speculating with the funds that you've raised. Um, I think Augur was a great example of a team that really thought this through. You raise a certain amount of money for runway. It's not your job to then take the money you raise and speculate with um, cryptocurrencies. That's the job for, for, for like fund managers. And, and the worst thing is you build this really amazing team and product, but then all of a sudden you run out of runway because you had been speculating. So I always suggest teams to sell the vast majority of the funds they have raised. Also, I think that um, teams are not looping in their investors enough. There's so many um, projects that are raising from these really incredible strategic investors, but they're not actually making them work for them. Um, so like, there's like very little investor updates. Um, you know, the investors have no idea what's going on. And it's really important to loop them in and ask for help. Say like, this is, you know, we're hiring for this role and we need you to help us keep an eye out for them or recommend us anything. And then the last thing um, I'd say that I'm noticing a lot is um, this kind of like neglect of best recruiting practices. So I think that um, people are really um, not focusing enough on um, what's the best way to recruit. So even from just like a job posting, how do you make your job posting sound like a place you actually want to work at? Um, there's a lot of job postings where it's like, okay, like who's going to apply to this unless you're some like crypto anarchist. Um, so, so like, you know, making sure this is something people want to apply to in your interview process. How are you making sure this is like standard and fair? I've, I've been involved with teams when they're like debating candidates and and they were like asking them completely different questions. So they're not like even keeping them on the same page. Yeah. And, And just like, lastly, like, you know, just compensation offers, like what's the right way to go? How much do you do in tokens? Like there, there's a lot of, thought that needs to go into recruiting. And I I suggest teams to talk to actual recruiters and get a better sense of how do you build out a team and and organization. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, I completely relate to what you're saying, because once I started covering this space, I started encountering a lot of people who, you know, weren't so familiar with how the press worked. And so I I totally know what you're talking about in, in some ways. Well, anyway, this has been such an interesting discussion. Thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Golapali, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. <laughs>